0: EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash inside EMS. Well, here it is. Once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabalero, and the guy sitting to my right, my good friend, the one that I like to call KG Kelly Grayson. How are you, man? Good, man. What's going on? How was the latest uh, trip on the world tour? Uh,
1: actually, yeah, we went to our uh, our state EMS conference in Natchitoches, and it was a good time as always, so we got to got to hang out with the tribe a little bit more and, uh, and see... Uh, natchitoches louisiana the city of lights it's a beautiful beautiful little place
0: was that a a speaking gig or was that just an attending gig yeah
1: it was speaking and attending and, and helping organize and everything nancy and i both spoke and uh we listened to some good uh physicians and and uh paramedics from around the uh around the state and, and a few national ems speakers it was a, it was a pleasant time
0: what is is the-
1: uh natchitoches if you didn't know this is the oldest uh european settlement in louisiana it's even mm-hmm. older than new orleans
0: oh yeah i wouldn't even know how to spell it but um
1: <laughs> it, it's weird
0: how what it's- was what was the main topic of the usually you kind of have a main topic of a conference what was the big topic at the state conference in louisiana
1: well, our the the way we focus our conference is is, is uh, we flip flop each year. We do kind of half of the national can you competency program uh, national requirements and and uh, so this year we were talking about STEMI and stroke and uh, um, and, and filling holes that we didn't cover last year mm-hmm. um, and and STEMI stroke and trauma were were a pretty strong part of it, mm-hmm. uh, but there was also some stuff there about. Um, uh, I talked about uh, diabetes, and um, uh, we talked about infection control and, and provider health and wellness and, and uh, a number of uh, things. It was kind of an eclectic mix of, of uh, lectures, uh, and we'll, we hope to, uh, to cover the other half again uh, next year and, and, and still offer uh, a little a la carte menu of, of what providers need to hear.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me down. So, um,
1: <laughs> you so, know, hey man, we, we had our requisite one person from the, oh Eastern
0: one per- okay. we had, we had George
1: Stefferson, uh, the author of, uh, paramedic buff to burnt, oh, who is yeah. now paramedic for, uh, paramedic for East Baton Rouge EMS. And that, uh, that met our, uh, our Eastern seaboard quota. We'll, right, we'll get the right. New Jersey guy next year.
0: The yank, the Yankee quota. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about conferences, but one of the things that, that I think we talk about today, Kelly, and I'll kind of set it up for you, is, you know, you were uh, at the Connecticut State Conference, and you were doing a class on, uh, you know, do paramedics diagnose, and as you put the feed up on the Facebook, there were a lot of people who were saying, I'd like to get into the discussion, or, you know, this is a, uh, a, mm-hmm. a, you know a class I would like to hear. And, you know, I think that we've kind of touched on this throughout our podcasting career about the the role of paramedics and uh, that we do, in fact, diagnose our patients. And I want to think, I thought it'd be really cool to kind of talk about it, hit some of the highlights of your yeah. presentation. But I think the first question I want to start with is this. We've been around for a long time. Why is there a misconception? And this isn't just by a, a little fraction of the EMS career field. This is a lot of people think this. Why do folks in EMS think that we don't diagnose?
1: Well, it, it was being taught in, in lower-end EMT classes uh, for for shoot most of our, our history. Uh, but it really took on a life of its own in 1993 and 94 when uh, the DOT uh, EMT basic curriculum was released. Uh, and, and the history behind that is uh, Walt Stoy was hired uh, to pick up the ball and, and uh, fix what had not been done in the, by the previous contractors. It didn't uh, NHTSA had contracted a, a group to revise the EMT curricula, uh, and they did not complete their task for whatever reason. Um, I don't, I'm not sure the politics behind that, but the deadline was approaching, and uh, NHTSA approached Walt Stoy in the Center for Emergency Medicine in, in Pittsburgh and said, uh, "Can you can you polish this turd?" Uh, as a result, Walt had to had to. Uh, totally overhaul this curricula uh in a very short amount of time and he had one stricture they put on him keep it at 110 clock hours now I know looking back on it now uh the the image of an EMT class at a, at a maximum of 110 hours is pretty ludicrous uh, i think i uh, most of them these days are, are approaching twice that um but that's what he had to do and when he did that the, to make it fit that 110 hour uh max uh uh, length he had to gut it he had to take out the pathophysiology most of the anatomy and physiology uh, most of the theory behind things uh, and have to make had to make it monkey see monkey do EMS <clears throat> if you see a do B if you see X do y and there was no theory on why we do these certain things and it focused mainly on symptom management. Rather than physiology and pathophysiology of of the disease process, so in that uh, from from 1993 94 on, we got this this uh, idea in our heads that we don't diagnose people, um, that that all we do is merely symptom management, and, and the idea has persisted uh, and hung around, even though EMS has advanced far far beyond that that uh, humble. Uh, humble period in our, uh, in our history, uh, when we were just taught to, to do things without knowing why
0: hmm. I'm just curious, how do you know this story to be true?
1: Uh, well, cause I've, I've heard it told and, and I know for a fact that, that, uh, Stoy's group was not the original contractors to revise the curriculum. Um, they were, they were hired, uh, after the fire contracted after the fact, because the, the original Working group had not completed the project. Um, and I remember at the time <laughs> there was a lot of pushback against Walt for how dumbed down the curriculum was. Uh, you know, and at the time I was one of those very vocal critics. I was like, God, this guy's ruining EMS education, um, uh, like a lot of people were. Uh, and I didn't have at that uh, in '93 and '94, the the background on exactly uh, what strictures he was operating under. I, I understand now that he did the, made the best of a very bad situation. Um, but you know, a, a whole lot of people think that that was why uh, you know that it was done that way because that was the best way to do it, rather than hey, we can't, we don't have the time to teach these people what they need to know. Let's just do damage control and try to, to make the curriculum a, um, uh, as, as least damaging as possible. This is where we got this idea that if you remember a time where we didn't even teach people flow rates on oxygen therapy, uh, we just said if they need oxygen, give them 15 liters by non-rebreather mask, and the only time you pull out a nasal cannula is if they're too claustrophobic to fit a mask over their face. And that was the kind of stuff that was that was in that curricula, and and you know for a good reason at the time, but it didn't do us any favors in our sure. professional advancement.
0: Right, but I think that's a great foundation. It's good to know that as, as that's how we got there. So now now let's think about this concept, though. So it, it, this has even moved into the paramedic. Um, oh yeah, arena, and I don't know
1: how they got exactly that. They extrapolated and that to paramedics.
0: But what one of the things that amazes me, Kelly, is that why are the paramedic instructors? continuing with the perception that we don't diagnose you would think that when these paramedic students are sitting in school they're giving them the anatomy and the pathophysiology and they're talking about you know the disease process or you know the different whatever it is man but they're the ones that are just continuing the perception that we don't diagnose and and i really don't know the answer to that but why are we here Well,
1: I I think, um, I think first of all, that the, that perception and that, that thought process is, is kind of dying out. And, and that's a great thing because 10 years ago, uh, I couldn't have gotten this, this lecture, uh, accepted by a conference. No way, no how. I, if I'd have said that it would have been heresy, um, and, and there were been a very few EMS conferences, uh, willing to pick up a, a topic so controversial, um, uh, because conferences, quite frankly, tend to lag a bit behind actual practice. Um, some of them uh, lag quite a bit behind act- actual practice and should be named EMS last week. <clears throat> but the, uh, the fact that it, it, it has been chosen for several conferences this year uh, signifies to me a tipping point. I went into this thing hoping that I could talk about this and start a really good fight <laughs> and 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 have a really good dynamic back and forth. It would make the the lecture um, uh, make the lecture much more entertaining uh, and educational for the, for the uh, people attending. And I couldn't get a good fight. Everybody agreed with me, and that was that was gratifying on one level, but but kind of disappointing in that. Um, you know, obviously there was a a pretty good case of selection bias. The people that that came to that lecture are people who, who, um, read my stuff and, and agree with what I'm saying. Um, and that doesn't always make for the the greatest degree of intellectual honesty, you know, if you don't have any opposing views. So, uh, um, I, I think it is dying out, but it's still there for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, a whole lot of EMS educators out there, and, and there are less of them now. I've been a vocal critic of, of EMS education and how we approach it for quite some time. But I don't, um, I
0: don't agree with that. No.
1: <laughs> but but uh, a whole lot of educators, when when curricula changes or when we have changes in practice. They update their terminology, but they don't really update their mindset and and the way they teach and their peda their pedagogy has not changed at all. Uh, they just use different words teaching the same old outdated crap. Uh, that's part of it, uh, and and myth and dogma tend to persist not just in EMS but in medicine in general. It's the old the old story about you know Nancy loves to tell this about uh, um, why the uh, The family's uh, grandmother's recipe for the Christmas ham included cutting the ends off the ham, you know, and no one ever bothered to question why you cut the ends off the ham until grandpa said, well, we had a 14-inch baking dish and a 15-inch ham. It just wouldn't fit Mm -hmm. (laughs) without cutting the ends off, but things like that take on take on a a legend of their own and no one ever questions why, uh, which is why I gave the perspective on on why the curriculum was dumbed down so much. But the other issue is, is a lot of people think that diagnosis is a legal term or a a term of art uh, and it has a special meaning. Uh, That doesn't necessarily apply to the pre-hospital realm. And I think that's one reason it persists as well. Uh, And in that lecture, I try to dispel the notion that that it's a a special word that that only physicians or, or nurses can use.
0: Yeah, so let, let's talk specifically about that lecture because that's where the discussion came, uh-huh. you know, on the Facebook. So in your – in your and you said that you were trying to get people to argue with you. I'm happy to argue with you just mm-hmm. on the fact of go on I, with your bad, I like arguing with you and, you know, I could always just find something to argue about. But the, the premise of the course then – and uh, I want to go ahead and get to some of those highlights so this way the people who were following us on Facebook can get a little something um, – you know, from this. So what do you try to get over in this course? I mean, how do you begin it and what are some of the, you know, the high points of the lecture or some of the objectives you try to get across to the folks listening?
1: Well, I I try to bring up the the common arguments uh, against paramedics and EMS diagnosing uh, that, that, There is something fundamentally different about the ways physicians, for example, arrive at a diagnosis uh, and that it requires a great deal of technology, lab testing, uh, diagnostic imaging and so on and so forth. Uh, I try to dispel that notion and all it takes is simply putting up the definition of a diagnosis from Tabor's or Dorland's Medical Dictionary or one of those and and paraphrase it, it. simply means to, to use history and physical examination to determine the nature of a patient's illness or disease, which is what we do. It's not any different than what a physician does. Uh, but the people, the the naysayers, the, the opponents of that mindset will say, well, but but we can't definitively diagnose. Well, no, we can't definitively diagnose. For that matter, neither can a, a hospitalist or an ER physician. Um Usually, the only one that can definitively diagnose is the pathologist. Right. Uh, but that's usually a little too late to help the patient. Um, and
0: just to add, I mean, just to kind of jump in here, when we talk about, you know, even the triage process in, you know, dispatch, I mean, what they're doing is they're asking a couple questions just to try mm-hmm. to pin down, just to try to pin down a chief complaint. And then when exactly. we get there, we have to be able to utilize our skills to make the determination one, is that true? Or two, what else the heck is going on? And when you yeah. think about that, from the, the component of exactly what you're saying is, we're trying to to ring out what has actually happened. I mean, how many times have we gotten to a call with the chief complaint that we've uh, been respond to, responding to isn't even close to what we wind up treating?
1: Exactly, it, uh, and and it's simply a matter. Diagnosis is simply a matter of of history, physical exam probability, and pattern recognition. That's all it is. And it doesn't require a great deal of of, uh, technology to make a diagnosis. Technology aids us in this. But what many people don't appreciate is that physicians are not taught to to diagnose based on lab tests and x-rays. They're not taught to do that. They are taught to, to, to diagnose based on exactly what I said. History and physical exam pattern recognition, and probability which is most likely to be the cause. And then and only then do they order the number of tests or diagnostic imaging studies uh, necessary to prove, disprove, or refine their diagnosis. If, if they start just throwing uh, all the technology at them, uh, they're going to be slapped down pretty quickly because their hospital administrators uh, are going to look at them as overutilizers. Uh, and, and those tests are expensive. They cost money. And if they don't really clarify the picture... Uh, or or even muddle it even further. That's uh, not doing the hospital and the healthcare system any favors. Yeah, but so, they
0: didn't. They didn't really care about that at the time. Anyway, they were really yeah. looking to do as many tests as they could. But I I actually well, had. I re- yeah,
1: the focus uh, on that has changed a lot.
0: Well it, it, it does, but Those not when we were
1: a lot, of, a lot of pressure.
0: Not when we were. Not when we were solidifying this foundation, though. I mean, but I once heard a, a doctor say, and it's really kind of, we got into a really in-depth discussion about it. He got a patient's labs back as I was standing there writing my report. This is the days when we were writing reports. Mm-hmm. And he looked at the uh, lab values, and he said, well, it's not mono. <laughs> and yeah. But, you know, exactly just what you just value. said. Yeah, exactly what you just said is he thought mono. So he went through the panel of saying, let me go ahead and see if it is. And he took his tests and did whatever thing he was supposed to do and said, Nope, I'm not right. And, uh, but it goes back to exactly what you're saying is they talk themselves into a working diagnosis, then they got to either prove it or disprove it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the point I make in the lecture is that diagnosis is not a special word, uh, diagnosis, uh, is refined, um, and, and advanced as the patient continues on in that healthcare continuum. Uh, and I use a I use a number of case studies to demonstrate uh, uh, how a diagnosis is made and how it's get Gets refined uh, along the way. There was a case of a woman with uh, WPW and orthodromic reentry tachycardia, and, and how uh, the definitive diagnosis of what exactly was going on with that lady, and and uh, how it improved, and how it get, became further refined as she went uh, along the path. Starts out with an EMT saying, "Whoa, this lady's she passed out, and her heart rate's too rapid to count." And then the lady wakes up, and I talk to her, and I get a little bit of a history and find out she has WPW. And I do a 12-leady kg on her and find out I don't see any delta waves in there. It doesn't look like WPW. It just looks like a really, really fast SVT, uh, ergo, it must be orthodromic reentry tachycardia, uh, and then I choose uh, an appropriate therapy for that, uh, which was not the antiarrhythmic drugs that I carried. I, I sedated and cardioverted her, slowed her heart rate down even further, get her to the hospital. The the ER doc is able to uh, to spot some some. Uh, Subtle uh, findings on her 12-lead And said, well, but this isn't really my bailiwick either Let's call uh, a cardiologist cardiologist, consultant, an electrophysiologist And the end of the story was As the lady had an EP study done uh, They found a couple of, uh, of uh, uh, um bypass tracts And, and zapped them and, and hopefully the lady was cured of her SVT But every step of the way A diagnosis was made just as our, our knowledge level and our, our, our technological capabilities increased, uh, the diagnosis was refined, Right, but it was still a diagnosis nonetheless. And you have to be able to diagnose a patient to choose which treatment protocol you're going to flip to in your little protocol book. Um, and, and the other point I make in this, in this lecture is that uh, I use the Dreyfus model of skill acquisition uh, to, to kind of... Paint a picture of, of how EMTs make their dis uh, make their decision making their, their yeah. critical thinking. You know, start off with the the base the, the novice, and then the uh, experienced practitioner, and the expert practitioner. And the expert practitioner is is the guy who is has, uh, has become a master of pattern recognition. Doesn't have to follow uh, set um, methodical diagnostic procedures uh, until. He encounters a novel presentation or one that doesn't quite fit the mold, and then he goes back and, and gets, um, you know, methodical and, and uh, very uh, ordered with his, his diagnosis, with his thought process, just to make sure he's not missing anything, um, which is effectively what we do. Uh, as we, we grow and, and learn as EMS providers, we, we, we start to get a little broader outlook uh, and, and look at the patient beyond just the symptoms they're presenting with. Uh, and eventually we become masters of pattern recognition where the act of assessing a, a patient and, and our history taking uh, yeah. is intuitive. And, and you don't have to say, uh, think in your head, a little cartoon below balloon above your head, sample. Signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, pertinent medical, past medical history, last oral intake, events. You don't have to repeat O P Q R S T in your head anymore because we know what questions are. Germ- yeah, it becomes or a not. skill,
0: but it becomes a skill. Your your, your interview skills mm-hmm. becomes a skill, like your you know your IV skills. I mean, after a while, exactly. we don't think about how to start an IV and we follow along, and and then after a while, you even start to interject different questions into those same paths. But one mm-hmm. of the things I want to touch on because you've made this comment uh, a couple times during this show where you've said pattern recognition. One of mm-hmm. the things with pattern recognition is it's important, and I've never heard it used this way. But I think it's a great way to describe it. Is when you see things and you continually see things, and then you you make the determination. This is why I'm seeing things. That really kind of gives you that pattern recognition as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. But it but it's a very very fine line between pattern recognition. And becoming tunneled vision and having tunnel vision based on that pattern recognition. So it really is important that as you now start to think about your diagnosis or your working diagnosis or what protocols mm-hmm. you're going to be using, which is diagnosis. Kelly, I mean, when we have to choose a protocol, we're making the determination as to what's going on and we're diagnosing yeah. what's happening, right? Exactly. Exactly. But, but here's the thing is that as you now start to develop the skill for pattern recognition, you have to be – cognizant that you just don't get tunnel vision now one of the calls that i talk about all the time that really kind of taught me a lot is a paramedic at 15 years i have to say that i was uh, you know that late that i went into a hospital and i know i've talked about it before on the show and the doctor said this woman has a stroke and you know she's got drooling and she's got a little bit of uh you know, uh, dip in her in her lips. You know, you could see that one side is is uh, de- is depressed, and so I put her on the stretcher. She's got an IV. I, I open her up a little bit more than TKO, and I don't have time to do anything. The hospital's only three or four miles mm-hmm. away. I take her to the hospital, and she's got a clear symptoms of stroke. Well, I got screwed on a deal because it wasn't stroke. In fact, she had a blood sh- she had a blood sugar at thirty seven. <laughs> But yeah. but one of the things that happened, which was really interesting, is they gave her the insulin that was meant for the lady in the other bed. But anyway, that's a whole other ah. that's a whole other show. Medication errors. But um, but one of the things is I got tunnel vision in the sense of I mm-hmm. believed that it was just a pattern recognition said it was this, and I didn't do enough for myself like the doctor did to say oh it's not mono to say oh this isn't a mm-hmm. stroke.
1: I I would quibble with you just a little bit. I understand your point and I agree with it fully. But but when when it comes to tunnel vision i think most people uh have tunnel vision because they're not looking at the entire pattern they're looking at the most prominent feature uh or the most prominent Yeah that could be design, a, that's a good
0: point that's a good point but
1: not the entire gestalt of the patient um so uh but when it comes to when it comes to testing, for example, we all know that that one of the biggest mimics of a stroke is is uh, hypoglycemia. You know, so that becomes in addition to our van or our fast exam or our uh, or our Cincinnati Stroke Scale, uh, we also check a blood sugar. Same way with seizures and that sort of thing. But that becomes that that becomes you know part of our our thought process in, in forming a differential diagnosis, uh, and then you. Decide Decide um, what tests or further history uh, or diagnostic testing is necessary to uh, narrow that list of differentials down to one or two uh, most likely cases. Uh, And the metric you have to really apply there is what is the risk of being wrong you know, and and if it's, if it's something as simple as, well, as it's a strain or a sprain or a fracture? Well, the risk of being, risk of being wrong, uh, is minimal. You're going to splint the guy's leg. You're going to provide, uh, pain medication. You're going to take him gently to the hospital, uh, and let them figure it out with, with diagnostic imaging. So the, the risk of having the wrong differential diagnosis there is minimal. On the other hand, um, if you're, Going down the stroke pathway, uh, and you don't check a patient's blood sugar, they've been hypoglycemic for that much longer, uh, and losing that many more brain cells. So, right. um, so you you uh, my metric for for when I'm going to use one of the you know the few testing tools at my disposal is is this going to change how I would treat the patient, right. and is the risk of me being wrong significant to the patient? If the answer is yes, then I'm going to pull out all the toys I have to try to narrow it down even further. But a lot of the people that, that say, uh, and that brings us to the second category of people uh, that say we don't diagnose, um, they'll agree that, okay, yeah, the thought process is there and what we do is similar, but, but diagnosis is a legal term or a term of art that, that is only applied to physicians and nurses and other selected healthcare professionals. But what we do, even if similar is called something different. Uh, so we'll call it a field impression or a general impression or a, a, a differential diagnoses or a super paramedic wild ass guess or, or whatever. And, and, uh, they they just dislike the term the use of the term diagnosis right um, and one of the one of the things in in the Facebook uh, thread uh, debating this is that we kind of argued with Nick Nudell, um, uh over over diagnosis and he was like I'd fight you on it we don't diagnose and and uh, Nick and I have a twenty year history of disagreeing on the internet <laughs> he's a great guy and he's a very smart guy but I don't think even he uh, would disagree with with uh, the similarities and thought processes as to how we arrive at a diagnosis. I think his issue was more data driven, and and, and uh, you know when it comes to data collection, uh, uh, diagnosis uh, carries a particular weight, um, and uh, he was disagreeing on uh, just as as uh, uh, semantics really, um, but. Uh, we we still make that diagnosis, um, and every time you've asked, uh, I've asked people, well, all right, prove to me that making a diagnosis puts you at, at on on shaky legal ground, um, and show me in case law where a diagnosis was made, and and that screwed the paramedic over in court. Uh, and every time they cite a misdiagnosis, right. They so you know, say, so, "Oh, well, this paramedic diagnosed this, and and it turned out to be that, and and if he hadn't made a diagnosis in the first place, uh, he he wouldn't have been in, at risk, which is absolutely not true. It was the fact that it was a misdiagnosis, and, right. and it was the thought process that was was called into legal question, not the word used.
0: You know, so. there, and I think there's another component here that we've got to think about because we do have to be able to talk ourselves into or out of." The working diagnosis that we're giving, and that's where knowing your differential diagnosis comes in, which is very important. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, one of the failures that we have is we don't diagnose the response to our treatments. So if we're diagnosing and we're saying that this is what we think it is, and you know, we're we're whether we're following the protocol or whether we're using a little bit advanced, uh, you know, uh, directive, let's say. Um, we still have to be able to say that we gave this medication, and this was the response to it. So, if we're trying to say, I think that it's whatever, you know, uh, you you were talking about earlier, Wolf Parkinson's White, uh, Wolf mm-hmm. Parkinson's White verse. But we've got to be able to document that we gave this medication because we mm-hmm. thought it was X, and then we say that we got the response that we needed to get, or okay, it's not mono. We've got to be able to do that and yeah. start this process over. We don't do that really well, Kelly. No, no, we don't. And and I'll say
1: uh, that uh, another lecture I gave at that conference called the protocol paradox on on how protocols, uh, as they're often written, can be very limiting uh, and and impair our ability to take care of our patients. Uh, but um, I'm I'm in a lucky, a uh, good situation where I am now in that every time I have uh, deviated from protocol and gotten called down on it, uh, and gotten, or at least questioned by the, my medical director and our QI people was not because I deviated from protocol. It's because I didn't make my thought process clear enough in my documentation. And, and, and they said, we don't have a, we don't have an issue with what you did. we, w- uh, but you need to explain why better. Uh, so that forced me to be uh, more meticulous and more thorough in my documentation. Just about every time I've deviated from protocol, uh, nothing has uh, I wasn't disciplined for it because, uh, my thought process was clearly outlined right there in the narrative, and I and I explained why I did something, uh, and I think that's a mark of a, a, a good management, a g- good CQI program. If they don't particularly care uh, if it met the letter of the law, was it the best thing for the patient? Well, I would I, you, I would have. Can you explain why?
0: But I would have had some challenges that either you needed to qualify that with a medical director before or after that treatment so well, you know because yeah, one of the suburb things in suburban st louis where you have you don't
1: have likely communication failures i also work out in the sticks where cell phone and radio reception.
0: Well, use smoke signals or something i don't know use sort of, morse code sort of thing
1: is, yeah that sort of thing is is, is also written into our protocols as that's well. good that's that's if exactly if that's good if you yeah if you can't get medical direction uh, and you feel a, a delay would, would bring harm to the patient proceed as, as per your protocols right. or, or make your decision. So the, the thing I'd like to wrap up with is is this whole discussion was not possible 10 years ago. So whenever you talk about the state of EMS and the state of, of critical thinking in emergency medical services and, and where we're going, and God, if you read any, social media thread uh, your faith in your fellow provider will will burn up like ash up the chimney um, this, this kind of conversation wasn't possible 10 years ago and, and we're starting to talk about new and, and exciting things, and, and, and uh, our knowledge base is ever increasing. And this is, this is to me, a uh, moot testament to that, uh, that we're, we're elevating our level of discourse. But hey, that's what I think. That's what Chris thinks. We'd like to know what you think. Um, email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, who I diagnose as the best smelling man in EMS. Thanks for tuning in. (laughs) We'll catch you guys next week.